0: I feel like if I was an LP, I wouldn't do that, invest in those funds because the same company which is doing pre-seed or seed, they're claiming that they understand, you know, late stage valuations, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't invest in a firm that is doing both seed and late stage.
1: I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I have Nataraj Sindam. He is an angel investor out here in Seattle. Um, that's doing a lot of the stuff in the tech space. And we met at a a local Techstars event and we just hit it off and we thought we should do a pod talking about a lot of different things. Um, This is a winding road and like, what's the right path? Go work in a big tech startup or start your own thing. We talk about some things in the headlines like Elon's strategy with X and YouTube and how he's taken a page out of the playbook from YouTube. We talk about Amazon Alexa and like the rise and fall and how no let's talk about that failure. We hit on the meta AI strategy, what they're doing. We talked about some of the late stage valuations with companies that are looking to to land the plane on an exit with what they're doing. We even get into some predictions on on what's coming up. This one's a little different, but hopefully it's fun. If if you're at all interested in what's going on and the overall startup or tech landscape, we we kind of hit on that. But enjoy my conversation with uh, Nataraj. All right, Nataraj, it's happening. We're doing it We're we're doing a collab podcast
0: together. What's up, man? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, Always good to meet with you and chat.
1: Nataraj and I are both in the, the beautiful, sometimes sunny state of Washington and Seattle. And we are both involved in Techstars. And I think today is going to be a fun one because we're going to be going all over the place with stuff that we're seeing with the landscape, with startups and and companies, big companies, and what that means for listeners on how they could apply those insights to what they're doing. But would you give a little background on who the heck you are, what what you've been up to? And I'd love for you to talk about your own podcast that you have
0: as well. Sure. So I'm Natraj. I grew up in India. Went to college there, and did my master's in math, undergrad in computer science. Then I was hired by this company called Epic Systems, which is a largest electronic health record company in the US. And I came to the US around 2013, I worked there, did a bunch of software development, full stack software development for them. So got to meet and understand in US healthcare system because of that. Uh, they had this interesting policy of visiting hospitals. So as a developer, so we are sort of like a product manager plus engineers. So we had to come up with the spec and, you know, think about what feature we are going to build next. And we, we used to do that by actually visiting hospitals. So I was at the front desk, behind this front desk, and I visited like all the famous hospitals in the US from Kaiser Permanente, you know, you name it, all the big health organizations. Stanford Health, Kaiser, Mayo, Cleveland Clinic. So we used to fly out either sometimes customers' expense or Epic's ex- expense because we are doing product research and sort of see how the software is being used while the employees in the you know, healthcare network are using it. So sometimes we used to stand at the friend list, sometimes we used to stand at you know inside when you know a doctor is performing some of his consultation depending on what product you're working, right? So so that was a very interesting and fun experience in Madison, Wisconsin. Then I moved out to Seattle to start work with Microsoft, where I still am. So right now, I spent a bunch of different products inside Microsoft, did software development uh, as an engineer. Now I'm currently as a product manager for Azure Files, developing large-scale file systems for on Azure Cloud. I also have this podcast called Startup Project. It's my excuse to sort of, you know, talk to interesting people. Like I've talked to a lot of Seattle-based investors, you know, folks from Madrona, Techstar Seattle, Ascend VC, and also some of the interesting investors and founders from India. And because of that, I also get to interact with a lot of uh, startups and invest in them. Yeah, so that's a you know brief background of what I do. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think it's interesting because you and I have very unique paths. Well, obviously, Oklahoma and India are very different, but I'm thinking more so the path of like, you've gone this route of like, you've worked at some big, like hard to get jobs at big software companies, obviously like Epic and Microsoft. I've gone this other path of non-technical, like startups, kind of early stage working as the marketing person. And so it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people listen are like, what's the right path for me? You know, do I go maybe the harder but safer route of a bigger company or, you know, maybe a more riskier route of a smaller company where you could have like bigger upside. And again, I have an agency, so I'm not building something that's looking to IPO, but like, Any thoughts on that? Because what's interesting is you've gone that path, but then of a big company, but you find yourself in the startup ecosystem doing investing as an angel. But any thoughts on that path? On like where you're at now, your phase of life, versus down the road, what you'd want to do?
0: Yeah, I, I did think about you know this question of whether you should work for a smaller or larger company. I think it depends on where you're at in your life. And I was discussing this with my wife as well at some point and. So she works for a late stage startup and I work for a big tech company. So it's sort of like we balance out the strategy among, of, among ourselves. It's a good
1: portfolio within your marriage. Nice.
0: Yeah. If you're yeah, thinking about it as a portfolio for your family, then I would say you can do both. But if you're just single and thinking about this, I think when you're young, it makes absolutely no sense to work at a very large company. I did that because I was, I still am on a visa and waiting on the green card. But if you're young, and I always used to like, talk to my friends who are based here, and tell them like, you know, why are you still not taking a risk? Because right now, so much of startup is de-risked. The process of, you know, raising a venture fund, sorry, raising venture capital for your startup is well-defined. You know, you could really strategize and de-risk that process of doing a company. Of course, there's still risk of you'll end up with nothing, but The side effects of starting a startup are actually positive overall, even if you fail. So I didn't understand why a lot of people choose to work at large companies. I can see that the school tuition or like the school loans, that might be the hidden factor that was driving that because I see a lot of young people from, you know, great schools joining large companies here in Seattle. And the main reason that I see that happens is because because of educational loans. If that is not a factor, then it's absolutely a no-brainer to go and start something or maybe like work oh, a couple of years in a different company, you know, gain, you sort of find your expertise and learn and then move to find a, you know, a company. But again, it, it's, it's sort of a personality question as well, right? Like what are you fit for? Like you might be fit for you know, running a company like a marketing agency, right? You have to have those people management skills. Not everyone is built for that, right? I mean, we see that this in tech stars as well. Uh, like, not everyone is built for management of uh, teams. So, you have to understand your skill set, I think. And it's a question of risk, how much risk you want to take. But, yeah, as a portfolio, I think like I don't have the option of starting a startup unless I take extreme risk of <laughs> whether being in the US or not, which I don't want to. So, that's why my wife takes the risk on behalf of my of our family right so that's how we look at it
1: that's cool yeah we're, we're the opposite my wife's at amazon as um big brother and i'm i'm you know doing my own thing but it, it's so funny but i like i like your framework of how you even think about it like based on phase of life and what your risk tolerance could be whereas like now i've got two kids and like fixed expenses every month and it's like you know now wouldn't be the time for me to like throw caution to the wind and go all in on everything. I, I'm a big proponent of like take care of yourself first, whether that's if you're like have student loans, take the company, the corporate job or whatever that could pay for it, maybe, and then go for the same. But I do think it's funny, people think of the worst case scenario of starting or joining a startup, and it's like, oh, it goes under, runs out of money, you're fired, you have to quit, you have to get a new job. But like the, the byproduct of that is like you build an insane network, an insane skill set, and the doors it can open to other things are, are hard to get. Maybe if you're at a, at a different kind of career path, but uh, no, I know, man, that, that's, that's a cool kind of framework to to think about it. So I think this will be interesting. We were like, what, what should we talk about? And we hit on some topics, and I kind of want to like leverage your insight because as someone that has their finger on the pulse of one technology. And two startups, I thought it'd be interesting to go down this path of like, you know, trends or things that we're seeing. And so I'd be interested where you want to jump off to. So people don't know, we're looking at a, a shared Google doc with some things we want to hit on. But I'm interested whether it's like the late stage valuations, the the, the X strategy that Elon's trying to lay the plan on the meta. I'd be interested to start in one of those three. I'll let you choose your own adventure. <laughs>
0: let's go with the x strategy right uh, elon always can generate some clicks
1: <laughs> <laughs> so perfect yeah we would you have it at the end of time on your podcast you did a podcast hack to like take over india so i'm gonna pivot my podcast to be for india only listeners but anyway yeah we'll start with x
0: yeah i mean elon works in india as well so you can use this <laughs> for, <laughs> for india as well okay so elon so i mean Everyone knows like Elon bought Twitter for $44 billion, you know, renamed it to X. Uh, I think everyone has an opinion about it. So, I mean, he did a bunch of, what I would say called minor improvements. You know, they launched a paid version. They started paying creators or, you know, tweet, people who tweet a lot, changed the name, you know, fired 80% of the company or maybe more and, you know, reinstalled Trump's Twitter account, etc., cetera, et cetera and people always see that elon's strategy is to sort of become or make x as the super app with payments because he has this background from payments and he understands payments because of his background of you know starting x.com 20 years back and selling that to paypal and eventually running you know paypal for a brief amount of time but i think based on what i've observed I think what he has really done one thing right, and we don't know if this will play out long term or not, but my theory is he actually is looking towards YouTube as his target and not a super app, like, you know, every chat has been floated around and comparisons to other super apps in Asia. And the reason I say is because of compensating the Twitter, you know, heavy Twitter users essentially, or heavy tweeters, if that's the word, right? Because if you look at the YouTube strategy, right, that really one thing that works for YouTube is the moat around paying creators. They pay almost like 50%, which is like 20 billion or 25 billion, which is insane amounts of money. That re- That is really protecting YouTube from any other, you know, technology company com- coming and launching a YouTube competitor. I mean, even it's like, you know, the engagement talk- TikTok is very high. But if you look at a creator's persona and what they do once they go viral on TikTok is basically leverage the same format on YouTube and Instagram and sort of transition into a long form content creator on YouTube. So essentially, the reels, you know, TikTok and YouTube shots, I would argue are top of the funnel to make a living on YouTube because that's the only real platform where someone can actually make money, not only to survive or thrive. Yeah, there are brand deals on TikTok and TikTok is spending heavily uh, from their own you know, bank account, uh, saying that we have X billion dollars assigned for creators. But I don't think it will reach a scale that YouTube already has, and that is really protecting them. So in context of Twitter, one is by compensating the heavy you know, regular content creators, you're protecting them not to move away from Twitter and move to say Threads, right? One of the things that's happening is there's a competition now between X and Threads. Threads is sort of could emerge as a actual, you know, viable competitor to Twitter. Like we have seen some Twitter alternatives that never really picked up, but I feel like Threads has enough, you know, dollars and real, you know, push behind it from Zuckerberg to actually become a viable Twitter alternator. And the only reason I think it's still not getting to a pivotal point is because of this feature. But to contradict everything I said, this might not work by observing the trend of payments. When they they did the initial round of payment, it looked like, oh, this is a legit check. You're getting $3,000 or $4,000 per month. that took account of all your lifetime of tweets now if you break down that to a monthly number and if you break down that to a you know yearly number from starting from now that might not mean much so that is the sort of a hole in this strategy that has to be filled and I think he's trying to fill it with long form video right because now if your videos can hold off user attention hold on user attention on Twitter then you can throw ads on top of it and then you can generate revenue and then you can share that revenue towards your users. And you are already seeing the main feature improvement that happened on Twitter after Elon took it is uploading long form videos, right? And now all you have to do is sort of give a pure e- video interface at a pivotal point. Once the uploads reach a certain level, then you are sort of getting into comp uh, competi- uh, yeah, competition with YouTube. I mean, it's a long journey. I mean, it will take a lot of time and push and of things to go right to get there. But I see that there is some logic in moving Twitter into YouTube, than moving it into payments, because we have a ton of payments companies making no money. We have Square, we have, you know, Apple, is the behemoth here, right? Apple will dominate payments because of its consumer base in the US. So it's hard to crack that market and it's not a high margin market in the first place at this point, right? I think that's what he's looking at. This is purely based on me looking at different data points. And, you know, other than that, there's not much going on here. I'm just looking at the features and thinking that this is what Elon might get.
1: Yeah. And like, historically, it's like Twitter's always had a revenue issue. Like, yeah, and as like a growth marketing agency, we will spend a lot of money on companies' behalf. And they always ask us where to put the dollars. And it's no question, it's meta Instagram ads, it's Google ads. And then maybe if you're spitting enough and you have some shekels left over, we'll throw it at Twitter. And the reason for that is we can show true ROI with certain audiences maybe. And it it just bums me, it bummed me out because I was a huge Twitter power user. It's like they have not figured out monetization. And so as Elon comes in, and makes this move. So to your point, it's like they've launched, you can tip creators, there's a subscription feature, there's an ad rev share. So similar to YouTube, if they land the plane on this, I think this is really smart. Like I we use ConvertKit as an email tool and they just allowed it to where we can share our subscribers with others and we get paid for it and then we can pay others to share subscribers if they opt in and we've like tripled our list. We've paid money out to them, but they're really embracing this kind of creator ecosystem where you can share revenue. So it's if they figure it out, it's amazing. Because when you think about any social net network, it's a two-sided marketplace. They need content, which by the way, we create. And they need audiences to monetize it with eyeballs, which we are. So if they build that one side of the marketplace with content and inventory, I do think the eyeballs and people will come. We'll see if they land the plan on it. But I thought that was an interesting call out. Because I'm also thinking like, What are the second and third degree impact if this works, like what this does to creators and whatnot? Because I'm already seeing people on my feed where it's like, oh, do you want the paid content to subscribe? I get a little annoyed just because I'm so used to the free stuff, but I'm like, wow, I see some people really leaning into that subscription component. Yeah. So I'd be interested as we kind of pick on some of these bigger (laughs) companies, we talked about like the... Amazon Alexa failure, which is kind of funny because I was trying to pull some stats beforehand on like the size of Alexa and Amazon because it's, I I have right here showing it was, it's on pace to lose over 10 billion and how there's like 83 million devices and people's already 2 million devices that have been sold, but it's still not working, which is kind of funny. It's like, what a ride. Like, right when it launched, like, you know, having this smart voice system in your home was everything, but it's kind of plateaued there. Like, what what is happening? Why isn't like Amazon Alexa, the, the next distribution channel that people are building things on the back of it?
0: I think there are a couple of things going on, right? And my sort of take on this is they have a false product market fit. The reason being, we all know that Amazon is one of the largest websites, retail websites. I think they're it's like 100 million people visiting the homepage every week or month, right? So they have a monthly active user base that is phenomenal and cannot be compared with anything else. Now you take a cheap product, you know, that is value for your money and put it at the top of the list, then you will get hits. You will get, you know, a certain amount of conversion guaranteed, especially if you make at cost. So what what happened really with Alexand Devices is, if you remember a couple of years back, Thanksgiving sale on Amazon was all about, you know, pushing Alexa devices. There's almost like this campaign that went around of like, you know, just like you buy a six-pack beer, you could buy a six-pack um, Alexa devices for 60 yeah. bucks or 45 bucks. I remember that. So what it became really to me in my eyes was, hey, Thanksgiving, you know, Christmas, the holiday season, everyone is looking to give out gifts. So Alexa sort of became the main gift Item that you can give without thinking, and it was so cheap that everyone thought, "Okay, let me buy and try it out." It's a new gadget; I want to try it out. Let me buy it. And you're putting this at the top of your, you know, the most re- uh, visited retail page uh, on the planet Earth. So it's <laughs> a
1: nice unfair advantage to have that storefront when you exactly. launch a product.
0: <laughs> so they they got you know customers to try it out and. It was sort of maybe falsely construed as a product market fit, because I am willing to bet that at least 50 to 60% of those devices are not being used on a monthly basis. And if you look at your friend Sergio and, you know, everyone will have an Alexa, but I haven't seen, you know, them using it. It's not plugged into your smart home anymore. At most it's being used for, you know, alarm, all right. Or if you have kids, you know, they, sort of speak to it once in a while. And that's sort of like a fad for a couple of weeks and kids move on from it. It was also touted as like the audio being the next big operating system. And that never really sort of, uh, you know, manifested in any way, right? And if you look at what is the problem that is sort of stopping them is I think it's because the same products are being launched by Google and they're better, that's one reason. And they also have this operating system problem, right? You have Google and Apple sort of doing the same things that Alexa is trying to do but at a slower place obviously. I'm still surprised like why has Google not launched more home products and sort of full pushed further down because they have a bigger advantage. And it's also because mobile still is the main computing device and We want everything in the home to work with your mobile, right? So, but what what is going good for Amazon is the Ring devices. I think Ring is potentially the go-to-market here. I think they should really make Ring the center of everything and not have multiple apps for Alexa and Ring. They should just fold Ring as the main go-to-market strategy for their house strategy. And it's a tough road for Amazon because as long as mobile is your first computing device, Google has an edge. Apple has an edge. You're either an Apple Home or a Google Home, right? And even though Amazon has been trying so much in the home market, I think it is still Google's and Apple's, you know, distribution power that is really limiting them. I, I think that's that's the reason why it's they're not able to push it and. Now, I don't know if you've recently seen, ChatGPT has a voice. And once LLMs have voice, you're looking at a whole new ecosystem being created and disrupted. So I would say ChatGPT will be killing Alexa. And Amazon's investment into Anthropic is probably a good move in that sense because they would want to bring the power of LLM in in the form of voice and give a sort of a new facelift to Amazon Alexa. And we would also probably now see a new version of voice enabled AI assistance, even in Microsoft used to have Cortana. Remember, that was discontinued. Um, Mm -hmm. And Siri would probably get a new facelift. And we're almost looking at almost a new era of uh, voice assistants that are about to launch, which are going to be much more intelligent. And it's going to happen across all operating systems and you know devices. I think we will see something happen in Windows. I have no insider knowledge about it, but this is just purely based on what I'm seeing in the market. So yeah, so I think someone screwed up internally. Alexa, I think you're you you gave me the number that ten billion dollars, right? That's only twenty twenty two. Now imagine how much has been spent in the last five, six years. It's anything. At it, conservatively thirty billion at best. And you're not making any revenue out of this. I wished Amazon put more resources on their Alexa, uh, on their full Fire phone instead of pursuing Alexa. And because at least you could shift and make an argument that Google Pixel came around the same time where Fire came. So if you have really done a phone well, there was a market for adoption, especially in Android space, because there was a, sort of like a high-end Android phone market that was only Samsung's game and one sort of pixel came into that era, it becomes it becomes pixels market. So there were, you could make an argument that Amazon actually gave up on the phone fast and moved on to Alexa, which sort of like a you know, bad investment strategy or capital allocation strategy. And it's also like weird one, Alexa is such a weird one in terms of like Amazon bets, because they're quick to scrap projects that are not working, right? and. Alexa sort of stands out weirdly out because they spend so much money without any revenue. And maybe this is because, okay, it will lead to, you know, better AI uh, capabilities inside the company. That is probably the only logical explanation here. Uh, Sort of like why Bing was maintained in Microsoft for all these years, right? It it sort of helped the company to get better at search and AI over the years. But although the, the fact that you need to sort of balance it out as Bing has always been making money and was breaking even at least even in the worst cases, and Alexa is not. So it's sort of like weird in terms of like Alexa, because a lot of products inside these Alexa devices, like they have echo frames, which no one has heard. They've released the third version of it. I don't know who has ever used that product. I haven't seen it in the wild anytime, other than the product releases that they show in those videos. So it's a very weird one that Alexa is inside Amazon. I actually like the fact that they do experiment with a lot of things, but they also know when to scrap them. But with Alexa, they have a blind spot. I think that that's my overall take on why I think Alexa has a sort of this false sense of product market fit internally.
1: Yeah, false false sense of product market fed probably hits hurts even worse when you're at that scale because you have those false signals like wow, we're selling this like crazy. But it's like, yeah, you can discount it, throw it on your homepage of the biggest store in the world and it's gangbusters where their true metric for success was a first time acquisition. And it's kind of like software, it's retention. Like, are people using it? Are they innovating on it? I love your point as far as like ring should be that flagship product, and because there's a natural use case there. And that's how you really own the home, right? And it's funny, I, thanks to my six-year-old in our school, she's friends with a, a boy who, his dad's a CFO of Ring. So I was like trying to get, see what it's like working at that scale. But yeah, I just want to name drop that my, my kid's friends with the dad's uh, CFO of Ring, so there we go. But, but uh, you're
0: talking about Amazon, what do you think of Amazon Ads? Have you guys experimented with Amazon Ads platform as a marketing firm?
1: Not as much for us as like we're kind of staying with the trend true, like ones that we're good at, but it's one we're keeping an eye on. What's really interesting is buy with Prime, putting that on Shopify-based websites because people see that as a missed opportunity if they're not doing it because if they're worried they're going to lose out to a competitor on Amazon because it's so easy to buy there, your wallet's already open. Buy with Prime is working extremely well with with some of our our clients and that's for me been been super interesting to see that partnership with shopify and the the buy with prime experience i was listening to Toby, ceo of shopify talk about it where he's like it's a no-brainer we would do that because it makes a better experience for our merchants and for the customers you know so he sees amazon more as a rival than a competitor if there's a distinction in that but but that one's been interesting to see the traction
0: it's funny how the sort of market perception changed or is being trying to change on that sense of like, whether Amazon is a competitor to Shopify or not, right? Because just a couple of years back, Shopify started its own physical network. They're competing. Uh, Amazon used to have sort of their own payments and then they sort of partnered with Stripe. They've tried something you know, like a Shopify competitor and then now they're doing more active partnership with Shopify. So it's interesting to see that dynamic change as well.
1: Yeah. Right. Trying to rewrite the, the history of what's going on. Let, let's talk about let's go down the meta path as far as like checking in on their strategy, but even their AI strategy going forward, because you brought up a good point and you're like, man, they were quick to rebrand without having real traction on how meta is working or, or not. But I'd love to hear your thoughts there.
0: Yeah. So with meta, I think we could talk about two things. One is like the whole renaming strategy, right? If every time like any big company renamed themselves based on a moonshot, then Google would have, what, 12, 13 names, right? They could call themselves as a self-driving company. They could rename themselves as a smart AI company, right? Microsoft could have called themselves as Xbox, Office, or lens company, right? I think the strategy why Meta did that was, I don't know if you remember this, but like three years back or maybe four years back, like every two months, Mark was in a congressional hearing, right? Talking about, you know, how they're breaking privacy laws. And all you had to do, I think, was to wait six months and to sort of TikTok to enter into the US market and everything sort of died down, right? And they were no longer perceived as the main player sort of getting attacked. I think it's not really about Metaverse being the next big thing that was driving that renaming, but it was the continuous political attacks and regulatory attacks that the company was getting. And that sort of like made them, hey, let's rebrand and see. And you know, some you know marketing consultant said, hey, let's rebrand and sort of maybe that will reduce our attacks. Because I I don't think like people are, you know, these guys are smart enough to know that this is a moonshot, right? However big the opportunity is, and they know that the timing might not be right, right? I mean, it's not like people in Meta are oblivious to that fact, right? Then. So that can't be the only reason why they changed the name to Meta. It's mostly, I feel, is it's about regulatory capture you know, regulatory pressure. They're getting all this bad publicity, maybe we change the name and sort of, you know, shield ourselves from a little bit. But you know, luckily, Meta got TikTok and then Elon Musk at the fr- <laughs> forefront of everything. So now Zaki is no longer the baddest guy in tech, right? Elon took that mantle away from him, and you know, everything is fine. I think. All they had to do was wait for six more months and everything would have been fine. So that's I think what what was happening with the whole uh renaming strategy.
1: Yeah. I like that theory. I you know he, he can just focus on surfing and MMA and then and, and do what he does. I'd be I, I wanna make sure we get to predictions because there's some interesting stuff there, but also, there's been a lot of stuff in late stage valuations because a lot of people that like listen to this or work at startups, like your payday is in your options as far as it going public, right? And so it's interesting how things all of a sudden have been kind of heating up, even though it's a like headwinds of what's going on with the market, a little more recession, interest rates, the consumer reports have come out around housing, but like, well, what are your thoughts there on those those valuations?
0: I think what we are really seeing is that late stage valuations got really completely screwed up in the last four or five years, right? especially if you look at all the good companies right, that came out of in the last four or five years, like Notion, Canva, Airtable, and even the companies that are going public, like Instacart, the stat is all the early stage investors, like, you know, pre-series A and series A and pre-series A, they all made you know, good multiples on Instacart IPO, right? At the end of the day, they've invested probably like less than hundred million valuation and exited at eight billion. So, however, like that's a classic early stage investment exit that you'd expect from early stage investing. So for them, it was a good exit. But the late stage investors, whoever invested after series B or C are all underwater. And the same is the case with Notion, Canva, Airtable, and... You know, take any other products that are actually good, right, that have a legit market. Airtable is making 150 uh, million a hour, last time I checked, right, something along that line. So it's a good product. And I, I personally like using Airtable. I think there is something there. I like Canva, but Canva's last round was at $40 billion. Yes.
1: So
0: <laughs> what we've really done with these late stage valuations is we really screwed up late stage valuations. And I always wondered why this, I mean, people give different reasons for why this is happening, but it's a question that I still don't get it because in late-stage markets, there are only four or five really, you know, big players who can invest at that level and that amounts of money, uh, or maybe 10, like, and this didn't, didn't have any negotiating power, which is really interesting to me, right? And we often see like VC firms negotiating founders at all stages. So I was really... Uh, Still, I don't have the answer to this question, like why is no one negotiating these companies down and making a case that, hey, can you grow into this, like, can we get an exit? Because I feel like venture sort of got confused itself with late stage investing. Uh, And even now, like there are some firms raising funds to invest in the secondaries for some of the startups. I feel like if I was an LP, I wouldn't do that, invest in those funds. the same company which is doing pre-seed or seed, they're claiming that they understand, you know, late stage valuations. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't invest in a firm that is doing both seed and late stage. Because I think as an industry, we're getting that wrong. I don't think we are negotiating the price in the sense that it makes sense for us to get a return. Right. So it is. That's what I think. And even with the good companies, you make because at some point the valuation starts to not make sense, right? even for good companies. Like I think we are hearing, and the, yesterday I was hearing ninety billion dollars for OpenAI uh, in the secondary market. Right? With SpaceX, I think we've seen one twenty billion. And even look at Stripe. Stripe was something like one twenty billion last year in secondary markets. I've heard that price pitched to me. And now it's sort of in comparison with Adyen, Adyen is looking like a better company than Stripe. I, and I don't know these numbers, these are just public narratives and it could be completely false and Stripe might be a better company than Adyen. I don't know which one is these, but one thing is sure that the, in the payments industry itself, the margins are sort of being squeezed and Visa and MasterCard continue to be the players ending up with most of the air revenues in, in the space, right? So even Stripe investors, late stage investors, I mean, you could easily predict that they might be underwater when Stripe goes public, right? Unless they drastically grow into their, you know, valuation, which is hard, right? Because it's payments market. is not like, you know, it's, it's a completely brand new market. I mean, Stripe is a great company. It's like the iconic company in the last 10 years, right? It will still be. It's not saying that Stripe is a bad company, but any good company at certain valuation will not make sense. And I think we really screwed the pooch with latest validation with, you know, all these companies that I've mentioned.
1: Yeah, all, all the stuff that was happening between like 2020 to 2022, it's, well, we're definitely paying the price now. So there's some fun stuff in here around predictions, and I'd love to kind of get into those. You're gonna have like trillion dollar opportunities, but even Rivian you have in here is like the second ED player after Tesla. And I, I totally agree with that just because i think of tesla have this cold following and i'm seeing it with rivian but in a different degree where there's like this different like true affinity and love for the brand and the traction where you have these like early adopters and evangelists and then the product pretty impressive but yeah interested to see the the predictions you have laid out and that you're looking that you're thinking through as you look ahead
0: yeah so i mean the first one is not technically a prediction because i don't know if it will happen online but you know it my take on this U.S. food, uh, the next trillion dollar opportunity. Everyone talks about healthcare because it's seventeen percent of you know U.S. GDP, and but the problem with healthcare is healthcare is all about treating you. It's not about preventing you, right? In the U.S. especially, or maybe you can argue even in the world, right? Every doctor is treating you, right? You only go to the doctor when something happens, but you don't go to the doctor even though you do the yearly physical. You don't really go to the doctor to prevent, you know, something. Uh, So if you look at then prevention, how do you prevent and make your population healthy? That comes from food essentially, right? And I think the food ecosystem in the US is so broken that, I mean, that's the most important big concern for me in the US right now is the food that we are eating is, it's not the food we should be eating being in a developed society or what we call as a developed nation right? If you eat chicken wings outside, it's guaranteed that that has been butchered like maybe five months before and frozen for like four months and just reheat in the microwave you know, before you're eating and mixed with some sauce that has been made, I don't know, a year back. It's 40 ingredients, half of them are unhealthy to you and carcinogenic and might cause you cancer, right? So, and the worst of all is it doesn't taste good, right? This is an average restaurant experience in the U.S., right? And that's why the only worthy restaurants in the U.S. are going to are really high-end. Otherwise, just cook at home or go to Chipotle, uh, right? A- everything else is basically, yeah, you know, at this point, like, is uneatable. And grocery sections, right? If you try to avoid two or three ingredients, the entire grocery section is unshoppable. If you go to any big retail store, it's unshoppable essentially. Like go to Walmart and let's say you're not eating high fructose sugar, you, you're basically limiting fifty percent of the store or maybe sixty percent of the store. So I think that next trillion dollar opportunity is you disrupt how your food is produced. And it's this is going to be a really hard problem. I thought Whole Foods will be a solution, but Whole Foods also really, really screwed the pooch here because they have so many green labels. I don't understand which is the actual green label that they're uh, that I need to buy. Then I think the regulatory bodies that are at fault here, and that's why you see like obesity going up. There's no real control on the ingredients that cause cancer to be that are being used in the healthcare system. Like that, that's also been a regulatory failure. But I think, in fact, I think Amazon should get into this opportunity. Like and they are the company that are positioned rightly and have sort of like the risk appetite than any other company to go into this. I don't expect Walmart to go into this because they're always been the discount players and sort of the cheapest product available. So you have to sort of, Whole Foods is sort of like aligns with this as the brand, but they need to start to target a significant, let's say they start with chicken and go from there, right? They have to start with some products that, you know, that are produced in a sustainable way, bring back nutrition, you know, make chicken tasty for once in the U.S. because chicken is not tasted in the U.S. You talk to European, you talk to anyone coming from outside U.S. and if they've recently visited other countries and let them taste your chicken. U.S. chicken is actually getting blander and blander every year because U.S. chicken is optimized for the fastest growth and a large breast size these two are the factors that are being optimized in in the u.s chicken and that means 60 percent of the antibiotics that are imported in the. US are fed to the chicken or the meat industry not to the human beings so it's actually we are growing meat using antibiotics so I think us has to at some point you know face this problem and tackle this we cannot the capitalism part of this has overdone like at some point we've Sort of over-engineered everything. We have more protein being produced per human being than ever, but at what cost? It's absolute bullshit that we are eating at this point, and we are not really you know, eating the right food, essentially. Right? That that's my big trillion-dollar opportunity prediction. Um, yeah,
1: it's and just to jump in on that, it's funny because like I grew up on the back of fast food, which, as we know now, that's horrible, right? We probably even knew at the time, but it's fast and it's cost-effective. And for the busy life, it's set up for you. But it's like, I mean, if you could just like figure out like, is there an easy cost effective way to give people healthy food? The the second and third order effect of like what that does is is amazing. But I think you're right on Amazon because they have the storefront, they have the distribution with Whole Foods. It's like if anyone could land the plan on it, it's it's these guys, right? So that's that that's super interesting. But um, um no, very cool, man.
0: Yeah, the second prediction I have is Rivian being the second biggest TV player. I think for a couple of things, I think the product looks better than Tesla, I think. And in the US, the most profitable cars are SUVs and trucks, right? They are the most selling and most popular and most profitable cars. I think the trucks are actually, Ford trucks are actually the most profitable cars. I mean, if you ignore Tesla, I think, or it used to be at least for a couple of years. And people are loving the brand, as you said. And Elon is sort of becoming a polarizing figure in terms of his political takes. I mean, he's obviously super intelligent, but also he's super weird. So a lot of people are starting to sort of not like Elon, which is affecting the brand Tesla, right? When you have such a polarizing figure, you'll have a certain percentage of people not buying the car. And I think we're sort of starting to see that. And I think Rivian, Rivian has, still has sort of a pivotal moment to reach. It has not reached a pivotal moment. It, I would argue it is like Tesla in 2017, where they were fa- facing a huge crash crunch. We wouldn't know the company would survive. For now, Rivian, Rivian has, I think, enough cash in the bank for surviving the next three years. So the next three years are going to be pivotal, whether or not it will become, but my prediction is that it will become. I don't see any other car company that will be mass adopted Maybe some of these Chinese companies that are coming into the U.S., they might have a chance. But if you're talking about the U.S. companies, I think after Tesla is going to be one of those.
1: No, I I totally see it. Just I look at what people are driving and what's in like on the street. It's like, wow, it's coming. Just how like all of a sudden everyone freaking had a Tesla. Um, Yeah. For people as far as that want to like hear more from me, follow you, where can they go? Can you point them in the direction of your podcast or where else you're making content?
0: Yeah, sure. So I produce my podcast sort of bi-weekly or bi-monthly. You can check out it on YouTube, Spotify. It's called Startup Project. The best way to find all my content is on my website, thestartupproject.io. And I have my newsletter there, my YouTube channel, and all the content and articles and everything I've written until now. I also write a newsletter, which is a weekly, they'll receive it sometime, Sunday or Monday. It's called Above Average. I try to give above average, smart opinions about big tech, startups, venture capital, engine investing, basically the things that I'm continuously interested and in, maybe an opinion that is not out there. Uh, so that's what I try to optimize my newsletter for. Yeah, that's it.
1: Yeah, if you want to kind of have your finger on the pulse and see what's going on, it's a nice refreshing take as opposed to some uh, of co- uh, the copycat stuff that's out there. But uh, Natarja, I'm glad we got to finally do this, man. Thanks for the time and ex- hopefully look forward to bumping into you more down at uh, Startup Hall.
0: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, this was fun for me. And uh, let's do more whenever we have time. Cool, man. I'm down. Thank you.
1: I'll give a few plugs first i send a weekly newsletter each thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me you can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com second for anyone running a startup if you need help growing your business check out growth hit growth Hit serves as your external growth team after working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the children's hospital in Ukraine. At Head our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation see if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.